You're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Welcome back, guys. I'm not sure how many of you caught the first time around that Dwid was a guest, but it was during the Psycho Las Vegas uh, weekend, and the conditions in which we spoke were, say, less than ideal. Bad phone connection, an economy of time, that kind of thing. So, it's with a great pleasure that I have Dwid Hillian back on the show. A way more relaxed environment. We talked about a bunch of really cool stuff, and it was a pleasure. And as most of you know, I've been a fan of Integrity and all of the related side projects. So here we go. Integrity has a very distinct visual aesthetic. And what I'm speaking about uh, primarily is that skull image. Like just, just the other day, I was wearing my long sleeve Integrity shirt. And in Midtown Manhattan, I was like, yeah, this, this definitely brands me as a certain type of person. Where where did that skull image come from? Because I know you have an ex, you know extensive background doing visual art. When I was a kid, uh, I, I still am a big fan of, of Danzig and the Misfits and Sam Hain and, and that uh, sort of thing. And I remember reading an interview with Glenn, and um, someone had asked him where he came up with the skull that they use for for Danzig and, and for Sam Hain. And he said that it was uh, originally drawn in a Christar comic. And uh, I'm not a big fan of Christar, but I thought that was an interesting approach. And when the time came for me to come up with a logo for my band, I, I, I remembered that story. And I had been reading a comic that uh, Kent Williams had drawn or had painted. Uh, it was a graphic novel that uh, at that time they were they were crossing from just pen and ink and doing more experimental stuff and uh, painting and different things like that collage and um, this comic was called Blood a Tale and there's a painting uh, somewhere located in the in there and some of the versions that has uh, this portrait of the vampire and I redrew in high contrast black and white style uh, my rendition of that painting just the head and then I redrew it over and over again over the years because back then, you know, I didn't have computers or files or any uh, USB sticks to store the stuff on. So I'd, when I'd lose it, I'd just have to redraw it from, from memory or whatever. And um, so it evolved into what it is now. I think it's probably changed over the years to some degree. But that's uh, basically how it uh, came to be. I have a side story about it, too, which is pretty uh, funny. Um, you may know the record we did called Humanity is the Devil. Yes. And uh, Pusshead is the artist who did the cover art for that record. And uh, the first time I met Pusshead in person, we used to be pen pals and, and that type of thing in the 80s and early 90s. And uh, I met him in person in... Um, uh, mid 90s or something like that out in san francisco where he was living and he said you know i, I got a, i got something funny to tell you you know that skull that you use that's that's taken from that uh, blood of tail right and i said yeah yeah it is he goes the painting the original painting of that by kent williams is hanging over my bed i own that painting. oh wow man so that was a pretty cool uh 
coincidence. That was uh, part of the epic imprint, right? That Marvel did, like I think in the eighties, the Blood comic, the miniseries. Uh, I think so. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was epic. Yeah. And the uh, and I think the writer's name was um, D. Matthias. Yes. I'm probably yeah, butchering yeah. his. I'm probably butchering his name. <laughs> yeah, J. M. D. Matthias or D. Matthias. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Yeah, that was cool. That was. Um, I remember that was the beginning of major companies like Marvel and then later DC with uh, Vertigo kind of delving into the uh, more a uh, quote unquote adult sort of uh, side of, of storytelling. And um, yeah, yeah, that blood comic was really cool. It was like a mini series, I think, or something like that. Yeah. It started out as four, I think four books and then they compiled it as, as one uh, novel graphic novel later on. Did you ever check out the Epic Magazine, which was uh, Marvel's answer to heavy metal? No, I don't think I did. If I did, I don't remember. I'll make one recommendation here. There's uh, the first, I think, like nine or ten issues. It, it was basically followed the same format that heavy metal did, where there was like, uh, you know, different stories, different serializations of longer forms. And there was this one particular Jim Starlin story that started in issue number one. And it was called the Metamorphosis Odyssey. And, uh, yeah, it's like one of these cosmic epics that later um, was sort of the origin story for the Starlin character Dreadstar, which I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with. Yeah. But somewhere it's probably collected into a graphic novel. And that's like, uh, I've, I've reread that several times over the years. It's really good. Your involvement with art. That started at a very young age, or did you, you know, what, what, what were the beginnings of that? Because that's, that's something I always found fascinating about Integrity, is like, which I mentioned earlier, was this very strong visual aesthetic. And some of the bands that I was attracted to earlier on, such as you know, Black Flag, and there was like, the Misfits, Sam Hain, you know, Danzig, that sort of stuff. It, it seems that you also were, were drawn into that through art. Yeah, that art was what first... Uh would spark the interest in a record for me because back then you didn't have um, much to go on. You go into a record store. There also wasn't a lot of bands. And if in the record stores that you'd go to, there would be a very slim chance of finding something that was loud or extreme. Most of it would be, you know, Phil Collins or Huey Lewis or something. But uh, in the section that would be considered punk or heavy metal, you'd have a very very limited amount of choices so you'd base it i would base it off of what the album art cover looked like and if it intrigued me and i thought that there was a story underneath that could be told with the music then i would take my chances and sometimes it would pay off sometimes it wouldn't pay off um you asked about how i got into art uh, that that started because i grew up uh, in indiana on a farm and there were back then that you didn't have the internet you didn't have anything I, I had a shared phone line with the whole street so in other words like if i needed to use the telephone i could pick it up sometimes it would be at a farm like two miles down the street they're using it talking to their relatives or something and i'd have to say oh excuse me i'll I'll, I'll use it later and then when they would be done with their call and hang it up the phone would make a special ring ring kind of sound and you'd know that you could then use the phone. It was like a community phone line because it was out in the middle of nowhere and it was the 70s. So because of that, because of the limited uh, inputs that I, 
I had for my creativity or for just being a kid, I, I started drawing and coming up with my own universes and where I wanted to be and what I thought would be entertaining to look at or to, to visit or to imagine. And uh, I guess in that sense, because I was isolated, I used that opportunity. I, I didn't think about it this way, but I just accidentally used that opportunity to develop my imagination. People that are born after a certain year are not even going to be able to relate to you, man. And, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's pretty <laughs> I, interesting. I One of the things that I think about all the time is all this 24 seven access that everyone has doesn't prompt people to just sort of sit with their thought prior to the internet, prior to cell phones, you had a time when you can actually be alone and have thoughts without being bombarded by advertising and people texting you wanting to find out where you're at and, you know, notifications from Facebook and that sort of thing. Yeah, sometimes I'll get, get lucky and I'll be in a place where uh, internet is not available because I have a European residence. My cell phone is European. Sometimes when I travel to the States for concerts, I'll be um, in limbo without any kind of service. And uh, it's kind of a nice break. You moved around quite a bit earlier on because I think you ended up, um, there's one particular town you lived in that had some really interesting stuff happen so uh before you ended up in cleveland you moved around quite a bit i think right yeah from indiana i uh my parents got divorced and uh, i ended up going with my father and my father remarried and we ended up uh, in louisville kentucky for a while i also lived in uh anna maria island florida which is near um sarasota i guess the closest uh, bigger city Bradington maybe but uh, I lived there briefly but uh, I lived in uh, Louisville Kentucky that's where I learned about punk rock and, and heavy metal music through skateboarding I, I started skateboarding I think this would be 80 83 and uh, 84 and then uh, through skateboarding other other kids had uh, dubbed cassette tapes that they would share with each other back then you would have you would buy a vinyl record and then you have a cassette deck and you'd make copies of your favorite songs or your favorite albums and you could trade it to a friend i guess like a mixtape they'd say now where you send mp3s to a friend and uh then i got turned on to a lot of different music at that point there was a <laughs> my parents uh they're very very religious and they ended up having this house that was not on the property of the church, but it was uh, behind the church's property. So in other words, um, like the lot behind the church would be, it was in a, it was in a subdivision in a neighborhood, but uh, the church was in the middle of the neighborhood. And then at the end of that, uh, their, their property began, you know, this other street, which happened to be my house was on that street. And uh, my house was the, the house right behind it. And, you know, with a lot of churches, you they often have those um, other parts where you can rent it out, have a wedding, or have a, a birthday party, or have some kind of celebration, somebody's anniversary, whatever. And the local, older local kids in the in the town had booked uh, Sam Hain. This would be eighty four, eighty five, I think, and they booked uh, Sam Hain on I think the first tour that they did. And the, the older boys, their band was named uh, Maurice. And later on, those those guys became, they split up and they became two different bands. Uh, 
Slint uh, was one, and the other one was King Horse. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with either of those guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah. Definitely so, Slint. More, more so Slint than King Horse, but yeah. Danzig actually produced the King Horse album. It was on um, Caroline. Uh, it's a good record. You mentioned that, uh, you know, the church was sort of this prominent, uh, you know, location in your neighborhood. And you know, did, did religion and Christianity, was that, and this is the Midwest too, so was that like a, like a heavy sort of, um, you know, was, was there like a religious sort of thing going on when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, my parents were very, very religious. And um, to the point of it being a... Uh, a problem almost and um yeah so that was that was always ingrained in me also my, my other relatives they were all into religion and, and uh, very far into it and uh, i think that that definitely put its uh hooks into me uh, into how i saw the world because of always being told about these um these eternal punishments and such and um yeah it was ingrained in who i am I think that you know the first movie that I ever saw as a kid also has a religious theme. It's called it's a movie called Bedazzled, and I had this really small TV set, and my parents thought I was asleep, and I turned it on, and this show just happened to be on as a, a late night movie, and I watched it, and, and it's basically like a, a Faustian tale about the devil tempting this guy uh, who's a a bit of a loser who wanted to kill himself because he couldn't get a date with this girl and uh, the devil tricks him into selling his soul to him and trading his soul to him in exchange for some wishes. And uh, every time that the guy's wishes would come true, the devil would swoop in to to, uh, knock his feet out from under him and and screw it up somehow. And uh, so that was also a big part of my upbringing because that that somehow really um, made an impact on me. Like, at what point did you decide or, or have this sort of um, idea that there was, like, a, a bigger picture available to any kind of belief like that, belief systems? To belief systems? Um, well, I remember when I lived in Indiana, I remember looking out over the cornfields as a really small kid and thinking, there's got to be more to the world than this. But at that point, as far as I could see it to the horizon, was just flat cornfields and barns and I didn't imagine there could be much further than that obviously there was but um, but then as I moved to different places and met different people I think that you know probably with the religious uh, mind expansion would be because of an unlikely source would be because of the satanic panic which I don't know if you know what that is or yeah, if definitely. listeners know uh, in the 80s there was this idea that uh, the devil was around every corner and he was in music and he was in books and he was in everything and you better watch out because it's going to get you. And he was doing all these things. And I thought to myself, is he really doing these things? And I wondered about that a lot to the point of it becoming almost uh, a problem for me as well. And then I would try to research things like that. And that's how I came across the, uh, discovering uh, the process church by trying to find out is there really something like this is there truly a a group of devil worshiping maniacs out there who are just trying to fucking ruin the world and uh yeah that's how i 
came to that uh, thing. But as far as uh, opening my mind, I guess that the satanic panic made me think, hey, that's out there. What else is out there? And then I started reading more books and finding out about different things. And back then it wasn't really easy to get books on uh, unusual topics, especially unpopular topics like that. As you said, uh, in the 80s, I think everybody was uh, some some derivative of Christian, or at least they portrayed themselves as being such. And if you weren't, or you said you weren't, then you were like a pariah yeah. of society. And if you were, you know, like if you wore a misfit shirt or whatever, then you were considered a crazy outlaw in society. People would try to attack you on the streets, and it was quite a quite a wild situation. Um, yeah. In the 80s, though, man, there was some of my favorite stories was the, uh, <laughs> you know, favorite. But the, I remember the uh, the Ricky Casso, the Long yeah. Island, that story that actually Jim Van Bever made that short film about, uh, My Sweet <sighs> Satan. I was, like, in high school, I think, when that all happened, and it was, like, in my living room, there was, like, this satanic cult on Long Island, which was, like an hour and a half away from where I was at that moment, murdering people and listening to heavy metal music. Mm -hmm. You're probably familiar with that story. I yeah, yeah. Also, DeGrimston, he, he lives in uh, Long Island. Staten Island, actually. Is it Staten? <laughs> he's in, he's yeah. in the phone book, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of uh, the listeners out there who aren't familiar with the Process Church, like a lot of the, some of the imagery that I saw earlier on with uh, integrity, like the four pie symbol, like all that sort of stuff. A lot of those symbols were inspired or, to, or sort of part of that ideology. So, Well, the Process Church uh, were probably the most highly uh, visible, even though they tried to be discreet, they were the most highly visible uh, religious organization uh, in the 60s and 70s that would promote satanism but at the same time they promoted uh they, they had four they had four parts to it so they had a, a jehovian part a luciferian part uh, a christian jesus christ uh, part and then they had a satanic part and the idea i guess would be that uh, jehovah's son is jesus and satan's son is lucifer and uh, and the sort of like duality that works together, the sort of yin and yang. And, but at the same time, uh, the idea of it was that these archetypes represent certain attributes that you would possess as a person. And you could go to their uh, congregation and you would identify yourself with sp specific aspects of each of those four characters so those four archetypes so you may be uh, someone who's brutal and you like to be you like to fight and you like to cause raise hell and uh, at the same time you're a bit of a trickster and uh but then you're also judgmental so then you'd be like in in that order you'd be uh you'd have a portion of you would be under the satanic side another portion would be uh, the Luciferian and the, the judging would be uh, Jehovian, uh, you know, and it could just really depends on what what your per, your personal uh, attributes would connect with, you know. It's it's each person had its had their own different uh, balance of that. 
And uh, that was kind of the whole concept of it, I guess, if you wanted to make it very simple and and, uh, and play and explain. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting because that ideology is something that if, if you considered yourself part of the world, but you also were on the outside of the world, that accounting for the different attributes of your personality, I think, is like... Without, and, and actually, there isn't really... I mean, I guess you could take it as like a religious context, but more of just like uh, this kind of archetypical representation of the different facets of one's personality. You know, like you could easily relate to that by putting different names on it. It doesn't have to be Satan, you know, Jesus, exactly. Jehovah. You know, it's almost like in Dungeons and Dragons where you're like, you know, chaotic, good or evil. You know what I mean? It's like to, to, yeah. to like lighten it a little exactly. bit, make it more relatable. I think that they used those characters because that would be they were the most popular characters at the time for that that type of thing. And uh, obviously, the Satan side caused them a lot of grief uh, in, in the long run. But there's a there's a an interesting lineage to, to how this whole thing progressed, if you want to know. Uh, so Aleister Crowley, he had uh, later on in life, he had followers all throughout the world. And one of his followers out in California was a guy named uh, Jack Parsons. And Jack uh, is the guy who invented uh, rocket fuel for, uh, for for flying jets and for flying rockets into space. And he had quite a bit of money from that. And he had this real big house. And he, um, he would have his meetings there uh, teaching the philosophy and religion of, of Crowley to... to, uh, to to his uh, followers, and uh, there was what the equivalent of like a Comic Con at the time for what would be science fiction writers, and he was a big fan of science fiction writers. He went to this Comic Con type thing, and he met his favorite uh, author, whose name is L. Ron Hubbard, and he invited Ron back to to his house with him and said, "Hey, you know, I got." A nice place you can come and stay with me for a while i can teach you about this stuff it's probably interesting maybe you could even use it in one of your one of your novels in the future and i just you know beautiful women and it's gonna be great you know i would assume that probably a sci-fi writer at that time in american history probably wasn't uh, fighting off the ladies and uh probably was quite uh, the lonely guy so he jumped at the chance and uh, so uh, Parsons taught uh, Hubbard everything he knew about Crowley and uh, Crowley's teachings. And then, uh, well, there's a lot of little things involved, and I'll just jump around a bit. But uh, basically, Hubbard used that, and he created Scientology. Scientology became rather popular, and these two uh, British, this British couple out in, uh, in London, uh, who Robert Moore, who Robert de Grimston and Marianne uh, decided that you know they were going to join this Scientology thing. They joined that, and they used aspects of that and created the process. So it sort of all goes down to uh, Crowley in the end of uh, in the family tree of all of that. Yeah, because there's some detractors out there who are like, oh well, you know, the process church is like, you know, they they throw that Scientology. Um, you know, term around because of, you know, just the controversy that's around Scientology these days. Yeah. Well, the process church doesn't exist. It hasn't existed for a long, long, long time. 
Right. So right. I don't exactly. know if anyone's if they're, they're if anything they would probably deny any of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, they even denied their, that they had any affiliation with Charles Manson, except for their magazine that they would publish had two, not one, two interviews with Charles Manson <laughs> at a time where you couldn't really get an interview with Charles Manson. And they just said, oh, that's a coincidence. Because, you know, everybody accidentally is interviewing Charlie. You know, that's just, oops, <laughs> shit, there's another interview with that old Charlie. He just can't, can't stop but be interviewed with us here, you know. So, you know, they, they tried to uh, clean up their image quite a bit. And uh, There's two really good books out there, too. There's, um, there's a Strange Angel uh, about with the Jack Parsons, it's like a Jack. Yeah, about, yeah. that's then, a feral, feral house. Feral house, yeah. And then I think Feral House also did a Process Church. Uh, was it Love, Sex, Death, something like that? Um, they did a few things. Uh, uh, they the the one you're talking about, I believe, is the one that's the collection of the magazines. Yeah. Uh, then they also did. Um, well, no, they did, they did the collection of the magazines called Propaganda. Yes. Uh, and then they did the, the Love, Sex, Fear, Death, which is sort of like uh, cliff notes, I guess, or, or something like just like the basics, like here's what it's like, here's some some excerpts. Yeah, it was. Well, that uh, was. It was more like account accounts of former members, and I think. Oh, uh, exactly. Yeah, and um, Douglas, uh, not Douglas, uh, Genesis Peorage, uh, wrote like the forward to it, and uh, it's actually pretty cool. And they, they refer, you know, they, that's where I found out that. Uh, the Grimston lives out in Staten Island because that's in the preface to the book and all that. You can... Yeah, he works for AT and T. Yeah, I, I have that book. Yeah. I have also uh, the uh, uh, the Bainbridge book, Satan's Power, and I have uh, Hand of Death. I have, I'm, just, I'm looking at my my bookshelf right now, so I can see all these things. So I know what I'm talking about to some degree. Uh, also, uh, Feral House did the book Sex and uh, Rockets, which is uh, another Parsons. Yeah, I gotta check that one out. Actually, I haven't read that one. Yeah. So Cleveland. One of those they made a TV show about. So. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Uh, I think it's called Strange Angel. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. probably the, yeah, probably that book. Yeah. Integrity is like kind of the quintessential Cleveland hardcore band. So... <laughs> <laughs> at least in my reckoning you know when, when did you get to cleveland how did you meet all of the original members that kind of thing like what, what was the vibe like when i was 16 i think uh, my parents moved to, to cleveland because of my stepmother's job had her moving a bit so she relocated and i ended up living in um this suburb of of cleveland called mentor and uh we moved in and I, I got my, my skateboard and I went to ride down the, the driveway to see what I could, could find on the first day. And there was this van across the street at the, the girl across the street's uh, driveway with spray paint on it and, uh, you know, punk symbols and stuff and some, some guys hanging out around there. So I went and talked to them and they were, uh, guys that were in a band called confront i don't know if you've heard of that i'm familiar and, with the uh, band yes yeah that was a hardcore group uh and um they had a different singer at that time the original singer who who wrote uh the, the, all the songs all the lyrics named jerry beck and uh, i became friends with those guys and through them i became uh and through other you know my school and stuff i met other 
kids that were into stuff because back then if you had any kind of even if you had Vans shoes as weird as it sounds if you wore Vans shoes and you went into the shopping mall or you were at the grocery store with your grandma or something and somebody else had Vans shoes you'd look at them and say ah what kind of music are you into and then somehow you'd probably have something in common with them that was kind of how you met people back then that sounds crazy i guess but that's that's kind of how it was my first band i had was uh called die hard but i at the same time uh, simultaneously i had made uh, integrity shirts and stickers and i'd been trying to figure out how i was going to do that but i fell into this other thing called die hard which was really really basic uh, hardcore type stuff except for the song uh, Judgment Day, which uh, carried on into integrity. Yeah, well, um, because of uh, those guys I had mentioned earlier, Confront, who, who I'd met, they were going to do a um, some concerts. I don't remember where it was, some concert somewhere. And they said, hey, maybe you can roadie for us, which basically meant I'd carry stuff. And I said, yeah, that would be cool. And the bass player, he lived in Cleveland Heights, which was on the other side of uh, closer to the city and his neighbor was Aaron Melnick and he, he had asked him to also roadie so we rode up together and someone in the van said hey this guy plays bass Aaron Aaron plays bass maybe you guys should start a band together and so we said okay well, we should so we started uh, Die Hard together at that time and then after a bit of time uh, they were unhappy with what I was bringing. Uh, they didn't like the, the, the lyrics or the vocals or any of that. So they fired me. And uh, like I said, I had done those shirts and stickers of integrity and I've been trying to think of how I was going to do that. And uh, at, at my school, I was uh, taking art classes and printmaking classes. And uh, I knew how to do screen printing, uh, printing of shirts and printing of stickers. And so I was making these Integrity t-shirts, and um, whenever bands would come into town that I was friends with, I'd say, hey, you want a shirt? And I'd give it to them, things like that. So uh, Gorilla Biscuits uh, had come uh, through town in 1988, and I was friends with Walter and, and some of the other guys. And I gave them some shirts, and um, I don't know if Walter was wearing the shirt or something happened, but... The next date after the Cleveland date was a Chicago date, and uh, uh, Tony Brummel, who is the guy who um, who owns Victory Records, at that time he was just starting uh, his label. Um, I'm not sure if he had any records out or if he had maybe one or two out, but um, he he asked Walter if he could do uh, the Gorilla Biscuits LP. At that time they had only had a seven inch, and uh, Walter said, you know, thanks for the offer, but. Um, we already have an agreement with Revelation Records. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my friend uh, in Cleveland, his name is Dwid, and he had this band Integrity. <laughs> and somebody had the shirt on. I don't know if it was Walter or if someone else. But he said, oh, here's the shirt and whatever. And so then Tony said, oh, wow, this sounds like a promising group, I guess. So I got a phone call. At this, at this point, I was living uh, in a house with a lot of other like musician type punk punk people you know i don't know if, if that still goes on but back then you, you'd have a whole lot of people living in one house and it would be uh, kind of like almost a flop house 
and you had one phone stuck to the wall because there wasn't cell phones invented yet. And, uh, or if it was invented, we, it was out of sight of our means. And, uh, you know, you'd get a phone call and you'd be out and someone would write it on a paper next to the, to the phone and you'd see that. And so someone said, yeah, this record company called for you. And I was like, yeah, sure. Fuck off, you know, but then it, it turned out to be true. So I, um, called the guy back and he said, yeah, you know, can you send me a, a demo? Then I said, well, you know, I don't have any money for no demos, you know, but uh, I'll see what I can do. And he said, well, I'll send you a little bit of money and you guys can go in the studio and record a few songs. So I came up with a song uh, using like a little bit of reverse engineering of other songs that I liked and also uh, like beatboxing sort of, you know, like uh -huh. just using my mouth as the drums and hitting my uh, hitting things and, and making sound that way to come up with a song called Live It Down. And um, so I had that going for me, and word spread pretty quickly. And this girl that I knew, uh, this was around Christmas time, I guess, so shortly after Christmas. So this would be like 89 at this point. And um, early, uh, early, you know, in, in the winter, like January or something. And this girl that I knew had gotten a guitar it's called a JB player from uh, her parents for Christmas. And it's a toy guitar that they sold at Toys R Us. So it's a smaller scale. And she said, Oh, I heard you got signed for, for a record. And, you know, I know you don't have a band or anything. So here I, you can have this guitar. Maybe it'll help <laughs> you. You know, I said, Oh, thanks. So then I, almost the same day or the next day, Aaron called me and said, Hey, you know, uh, sorry that uh, we fired you from Die Hard, but we heard you had a record deal and you know, I'd love to be a part of it. And I said, uh, Yeah, okay. And he said, But I want to play guitar. And I said, Funny that you mentioned you want to play guitar. This girl just gave me a guitar. Do you have a guitar? He's like, I don't have a guitar, I have a bass. So he came over and he got the guitar. And the, he's a, a smaller guy. And so the smaller guitar really worked well for him, I think. Uh, it just seemed to be, an, uh, you know, the universe was smiling on us at that moment. And uh, the guitar really fit him very well. And uh, so I said, this is the idea that I have. What do you think? And then he worked on that. And then we got Tom, who was in Confront, uh, to play bass. And uh, then we got this other guy to play drums, which I... I'm not so pleased about that, but um, we recorded the demo. We sent it to Victory. They liked it. They said, maybe you could record these songs better and do a 7-inch. And we thought, wow, a 7-inch is insane. So we uh, went into a, a recording studio and we did uh, did the 7-inch. It's fascinating, honestly, about really because the other thing <laughs> that comes to mind is that uh, the band Scratch Acid was a band that existed in name and on stickers and T-shirts before there was actually a lineup. Oh, great. Yeah, no, so it's kind of like... I'm not alone. No, you're not, that's <laughs> what I mean. I'm like, oh, this sounds just like a story I heard about Scratch Acid. So Yeah, I like Scratch Acid. Yeah. I didn't know that about them. And Jesus Lizard, I like. Nowadays, you can record in your phone. You can record on your computer. It's easy. Or maybe your friend even has a nice setup. But back then, it was, like, impossible to record anywhere. And we happened to know these, these guys that were in uh, glam rock bands that would just do basically cover songs of Poison and Bon Jovi and stuff. And they would go, 
there, there was like a scene of the, those kinds of bands, and they would all go to this really small, inexpensive new studio and record their demos there. And uh, what they'd do is they'd record covers of Bon Jovi and stuff, and then they'd sell tapes at their shows for their for their fans. And they said, you could go there and record. So we went there, and the guy was like, okay, what kind of music do you, you guys play? And we were like, yeah, well, it's... Uh, we tried to explain it. He didn't really understand it. So we played some tapes and things. And he said, why do you want to make that? You could make something <laughs> like on the radio. You have a record deal. This is your big shot. Said, yeah, this is what we want to make. Or we're, we're not able to do what, you, you know, Phil Collins or something, you know. Or even if we were able to, we're not, we're not able to create creatively. We're not able to do that. <laughs> you know? So, uh. Eventually, through a lot of uh, tug of war with the studio, we were able to, to pull that out, uh, the demo and then the 7-inch. And, uh, and and we did record a couple albums with the same guy as well. But back then, it was really difficult to get into a recording studio. And it was pretty expensive to do as well, but this place was less expensive than the rest. So. Yeah, because back then, you had to buy tape, which was not cheap. You know, It's yeah. not like now where you just have to show up with a hard drive or something, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. You had to buy a real, real tape. Yeah, so that that stuff was was very expensive, actually. You know, especially if you're a bunch of guys living in a house together, and, you know, kind of trying That's to true. make it happen. You know. But you know, the good thing about that tape, and believe it or not, that tape holds up. Yeah. I, I just uh, six months ago, I had the Those Who Fear Tomorrow uh, reels converted to digital, and it was perfect. It was crazy how 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 perfect it sounded when it got uh, converted. I, I thought it was going to sound like, you know, it'd been underwater. Or I, I don't know what it would sound. I thought it would sound terrible, but it sounds perfect. There was like a few bands that come, like when I think of Integrity, I think of Ringworm. I think of, uh, you know, when Cold Blood, you know, I had Blaze on as a, as a guest a while back. And, uh, you know, the term Holy Terror gets thrown around. And um, uh, when I when I was talking to Blaze, I asked him about this, and he's like, "Well, that's that's something that that Dwid came up with that term." So, so what's what's that term like? Is there any significance to that? Is there sort of any connection between these bands besides sharing members? And I can't uh, speak for them for what they want to associate uh, their music with, but I can say that from talking to them, uh, Ringworm and, and and Cold Blood, they don't want any connection with that kind of uh, title. Uh, they don't like, they don't uh, associate with that uh, Holy Terror thing. Holy Terror uh, came about because there was a, a magazine called Inside Front, which was uh, ran by uh, Brian from the band Catharsis. Do, do you remember that? Yeah, they were great, man. And so Brian had a zine, and he wanted to describe this kind of music, but yeah, it's it, this, is, this is a very complicated thing, because I... I seems like lately i have this conversation a lot so uh so when our first album came out it would be like 91 uh we recorded it in, in, in like, like late 90 i think and it came out in 91 and uh it was uh, people said it was too heavy metal to be hardcore and too hardcore to be heavy metal and two metal to be punk, and two everything to be the other thing. So we were, we were sort of a band without a without a genre, which I think is a good thing. But unfortunately, most people 
they their their heads start to smoke when they find out. Oh my God, it doesn't fit into that box. I I, I don't know what to do. So at that time, hardcore had changed from the hardcore that I had grown up with, and it was only not that long, you know, maybe uh, not even ten years I had I been into it, but it had changed dramatically uh, as far as what the definition of it meant. And originally, what I knew it uh, to mean was uh, it was punk and metal together. So sometimes you're more punk and sometimes you're more metal, but basically like that. But you could throw other things in there too, and that's still okay. Like you said before, Black Flag and and, uh, and bands like that. So you had this different thing, and and if people were doing their own thing, and it was considered hardcore because it wasn't necessarily just punk, but it also wasn't necessarily heavy metal. And so that's kind of what we thought we were, but I guess we weren't that either, because once uh, reviews came out for the album, all the people who were into hardcore music said, "Oh, this is not hardcore. This is heavy metal. This sucks. This is glam rock. This is all kinds of different things." So we said, okay, whatever. Who cares what you know what genre it is? We like to play this music because we like it. That's all. And if it doesn't fit into people's proper category, I don't care. So we just continued to do it. But at the same time, Brian uh, from Inside Front, he wanted to to find a way to say that it didn't sound like. Uh, you know the typical uh, hardcore sound which is usually like uh, I'm living without a home uh, my gang is going to fight your gang and also you're not allowed to eat this but I'm allowed to eat some things but you're not allowed to eat that and if you eat that then I'm not your friend so I'm mad about what's in your refrigerator that kind of thing and that was sort of what was the main thing at that time so we didn't really fit that and uh, so he said you guys sing a lot about uh, apocalyptic imagery and uh, the end of the world and this kind of religious thing and uh, you know, the, the fervor of serial killers purging the earth and, and things like this. So I think of it as like holy terror, like a, a terrorism of, of religion or something. And it could be considered to be anti-religious or it could be considered like inquisitory religious where it's so religious that it's out to impose on other people, I guess. So that term came about because of Brian. And I thought, well, that makes more sense than the other thing about, you know, topics that we don't have anything in common with really. And, you know, early on we did try to, you know, when we, when we were all young, we were not drinking because we were kids. And uh, even though the funny thing was that, at least from Aaron and I, we both had uh, drinking problems. Aaron was in AA when he was a kid. And so that's why he was straight or whatever. And uh, I had a lot of problems too. And um, so I was straight because of that. And also because I lived at, at some point in the suburbs where you, you couldn't just go into liquor stores and buy drinks until you move into the big city. Then all bets are off. So uh, there was a little bit of that on the very first demo. We had songs about uh, diets and what's in your refrigerator. But after that, when the first album came out, that was where we sort of knew what we were really doing and what we wanted to do. And uh, I think that the sound was there on the demo in the 7-inch, but the the vision wasn't exactly right yet. And, and when the al first album, Those Who Tomorrow, came out, then we sort of uh, found the direction where everything was working correctly, like the artwork 
and the lyrics and the music and the fact that the songs were all uh, different from each other. It wasn't that one song was that they weren't all the same song over and over again, like 12 of the same song, but it would be 12 totally different songs that none of them really made sense together, but somehow it kind of made sense for some people. So, yeah, well, well, that that kind of uh, you know bandwidth of material, I think, and and that sort of uh, you know idea of trying to move forward and have not just you know, uh, these kind of rote lyrics is what kept the band interesting all these years. You know what I mean? I mean, even, you know, there's different eras of integrity, but what happens a lot of times with bands that have been around for like 20 years as a fan, I kind of discount their, their last few records because they're not as good as the earlier records. You know what I mean? And there's two exceptions. One of them is integrity because the last few records that, it, that came out, I think are, I actually listen to those records more than like humanity is humanity is a devil. And oh, the other band is the brand new Chromag stuff that came out is, is awesome. I don't know if you've heard that stuff yet. I, I heard one song. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it was called though. Yeah. It's just a, it's a seven inch. It came out uh, incidentally yeah. on victory. And, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's on victory too. That's right. Yeah. 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 Harley's a nice guy. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's good that he's doing stuff. No, totally, you know. Um, so the, the new sort of era of the band is, um, well, there was a little bit of a lull, I think, in the, in the career of the band. And then these guys put this new line, newer, newer lineup together and came out with a, almost like a more black metal kind of vibe. But yet it still has that root in, uh, in punk music and hardcore. Which record are you meaning? Well, I'm talking about, like, you know, we all the way back to like uh the black curse like that record is, oh yeah to me is like sort of the beginning of like i mean in, in my opinion i mean i don't know how you see it but it's like for me that in my opinion that's kind of like a, a division like a new point of like where things started changing i think uh sonically for the band yeah technology started to become uh to catch up with where i always hoped that it would would get for the band because like we said before, it's really expensive to record in the studios and everything. And then at that point, when that record and, and we had a single out uh, shortly before that called uh, Valpurgis Knot. And at that point, we were able to uh, mix between studio and home recording. So you could get a lot more done and you could experiment more and you didn't really have to worry about the, uh, you know, the, the clock ticking uh, with the money counting up. Uh, running out too fast so um we i was able to spend more time on the music spend more time on the ideas and take more chances because i had the things at my fingertips the, the tools at my fingertips to allow me to, to to do that and uh slowly it got into that rhythm of being able to record a lot of it on home equipment and then send it back to somebody else, and then that person would do their thing and then build upon it that way, which is where it is now, where we can do a lot of it at, at home and yeah, perfect it the way we like and, you know, or scrap it or cut it up and change it, and do whatever you want. Yeah, that's, that's a huge uh, tool that people have these days, especially, you know, a lot of times bands live in different states or, in your case, different countries, you know. Yeah. 
More re- and my more education recently. was in, in collage, so uh, I apply that to, to music. So uh, if you're not familiar with collage or if your audience is not familiar with collage, collage is where you take uh, images from newspapers or, or magazines and cut out different parts of it and then montage it together and make new images, new art out of found pieces of imagery. And uh, the concept of that, taking pieces and moving them around, that's kind of how I understand music that's how i see it at least and so whenever i'm working on things i can say okay i take this chunk and i move it here what if i put this here and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work and then sometimes you can make it work and and sometimes when it doesn't work it inspires you for something totally new that you create from it from that point and that gives a a fresh idea i think because i don't know anybody else who usually goes that direction so that that perspective allows a lot of freedom and a lot of probably what, what a lot of people would call mistakes to occur. And sometimes the mistakes are, are the great aspects of, of what, what I do with integrity. What comes to mind is uh, the name Brian Geisen. Are you familiar with that guy? Yeah, of course. Brian Geisen. Yeah. Geis, Geisen. Yeah. I, I'm probably saying it wrong, but actually he wasn't the first. It was uh, Tristan Zara and Andre Breton. A lot of people attribute uh, Burroughs and, and Brian Geisen or Geisen uh, as being as being the inventors of cut up, uh, which is uh, which for your for your listeners, is the idea of collage as words, uh, poetry collage, I guess. But the original people to do that were, was Andre Breton and Tristan Zara of the Dada movement in, in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. And what they did was they had this performance where they took a, a hat the time when people wore those big hats, you know, uh, they took the, took off one of these big hats and they cut out the newspaper, uh, clippings from probably about the, the first world war, put it all into a hat and then just started reading out words, pulling out the word, reading it, throwing it, reading it, throwing it, reading it, throwing it. And the juxtaposition of those words together, forming visuals in the mind of the audience drove the audience into a fury and they started to uh, fight each other and and in a way that was the first punk concert you know they started to fight each other and the presenter and everybody it broke out into a riot and that was in my opinion how how uh, underground music sort of began that was the very first uh, mosh pit (laughs) yeah more recently in the very recent past you guys played at um at las vegas psycho las vegas and uh how was how was that that was great it's always great we've played it a couple of times and yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun and uh the only downside to it is that uh, i end up knowing too many of the people that are involved in it and then <laughs> I, I end up talking to everybody and i never get to see any bands i'll head through this oh this band is playing in half an hour at this stage and i'll start walking there i'll run into somebody talk to them for 10 minutes and then five feet later i run into another guy and next thing you know that show's over so that's <laughs> but you know it's also a great thing to see old friends as well so. a few years ago you guys played at um at a uh, roadburn i think right yeah yeah, yeah. that's, that's like, not too far from my house yeah 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 and how yeah you're you live in belgium now right and yeah i yeah. live in belgium and uh that probably is one of my favorite festivals just because of um the way it's curated, I think, is really cool. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of variety of different bands that play that. 
and it's yeah. cool that integrity played but then also like you'll, you'll get a band that's completely different like yeah. i have a funny road burn story if you want to hear it sure my i have a friend who's in a band called amon ra they live in the oh, yeah. city that i live in do, mm-hmm. you, do you know who they are i do i know they're, i know colin very band. well actually yeah yeah colin he's my friend and uh he and his kids come to my house for halloween because my neighborhood's the only one that has halloween so I, I put on Halloween in my neighborhood, so they come uh, for that. Anyway, he was uh, he was asked to do a, his solo uh, performance at the Roadburn, and uh, I convinced him to. We had he and I had just done a collaborative uh, recording together. For my, I had this project called Vermapier, where I made homemade instruments and sort of. It's not really black metal, but kind of in that world rough guitar metal but made with homemade guitars and kind of like junk uh, almost not cigar boxes but looking like that like the old blues it was, the idea was to take the old old delta blues and fuse it together with um, the french black metal stuff from the oh, early yeah. or from the mid 90s called the legions new war and um so he and I did this collaboration show together, and it, it was at Roadburn. And my favorite band growing up was uh, is is Gizem from Japan. Oh yeah. And so, I part of the reason I was like, please let me, you know, let us do this collaborative together was because I would get an opportunity to play with Gizem, which was my childhood dream. And after we got done playing our set, I went to put my equipment away, and and, and at Roadburn there's this big garage where you you can store your equipment and then go off and see the concerts. So I stored my equipment and one of the security guys said, Hey, uh, are you here to see that Japanese band? And I said, yeah, actually I am. And he said, I oh, just go through that door right there. And, and, you, and that's where it is. So I thought that that was where, you know, where the, the general public could go at. So I walked through the, this, this curtain, I pushed the curtain aside and I was with my, uh, my, my friend JP and my wife Stephanie and we walk through open the curtain and there I'm face to face with Sakevi of Giza nice. and my wife and my friend are talking away and they're not paying any attention and they don't care and I'm like wow this is fucking Sakevi from Giza so I'm talking to him and uh, telling him all these stories that I have these stories like that's the first record I bought and all this stuff and so somehow he knew from these dumb stories he must have read it in a, on the internet or something maybe he searched Gizem and this this redundant story that I always tell popped up somehow and he read it and he recognized the dumb story and he said oh are you Dwight Hellion and I was like oh my god and I turned to my to my wife and my friend and they're talking away they don't care and I'm thinking geez nobody's nobody's experiencing this no I have no witness <laughs> but uh yeah, so I got to watch Giesen from the side stage, and I was uh, blown away. Yeah, it's just cool that there's a festival like that where you can see, you know, all these different varied styles, yet when you take a step back and look at the entire, like, breadth of the festival, there are these, like, weird threads that connect these bands, like, stylistically, you know what I mean? And uh, it's, like, almost like this intangible thing that you can kind of see, oh, yeah, this makes sense, this makes sense that... You know, Fields of the Nephilim played and Gizem played and Integrity, even though on each one on its own has its own separate sort of thing, you know? Yeah, well, we've had a lot of <clears throat> strange uh, 
strange shows with different types of bands. Our first European tour that we ever did was with Neurosis. And that was at the time when Neurosis was transitioning from uh, Alternative Tentacles, which was uh, Jello Biafra's label. And uh, then they went on to, to join uh, Relapse. Yeah. So they were, uh, Alternative Tentacles more known for punk and Relapse is more known for metal. So it was sort of, you know, sort of crossing over at that point with them. And you know, anybody who listens to their music, they have a lot of different influences uh, mixed into their cauldron, and it comes out very original because of that. So that was a uh, it was a great tour to do, and that was the type of band that, even though they don't sound anything like us and we don't sound like them, it was a lot of fun to tour with them because we also were interested in weird music that was uh, at the time considered. Uh, taboo to like uh, like Joy Division for example we would each uh, uh, do a, a Joy Division cover in our set dedicated to the other band oh really what songs were those that you guys covered well we would do we would do um, New Dawn Fades okay. and I think they did uh, Day of the Lords and um, you know I, I think that because we would play them heavier people wouldn't really realize uh, that it was uh, that kind of music because people will frown on other kinds of music back then. Now people like a lot of different things. Is there anything on the horizon coming up uh, show-wise for Integrity? Okay, so November 8th we play Dallas. The 9th we play Denver. The 13th we play Baltimore. The 14th we play Portland, Maine. Uh, the 15th Boston. The 16th Quebec. So it's not all America. It's uh, Canada okay. also. It's North American. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the 17th is Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And then we have uh, January 5th, we have Tampa. And then there's some other um, American South shows uh, that are around the Tampa um, date. The Tampa is a festival called uh, FYA Fest. And uh, I think it just sold out last week. So then we can announce these other shows that we're doing on the way down there right on thank you very much for your time and um yeah looking to hopefully ca catch you guys in the states at some point soon yeah that would be great right on i appreciate you uh taking the time to interview and ask these questions and uh and that you care it's, it's really nice i appreciate that That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.